0: Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to head coach at Speedworks, Jonas Dodu. (music) Thanks for tuning in to episode 295 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So another long overdue part two, this time with Jonas Dodu. So in this episode, we build on some of the themes that he actually covered in his recent webinar, which you can actually check out on his Speedworks website and get access to that. So it's a three hour webinar, and he's mainly, mainly focused around acceleration. So in this episode, we continue that focus and have a little chat around his acceleration principles, uh, optimizing step length, and or step frequency, where to focus our attention when it comes to working with sprinters versus team sport athletes. So that topic's come up a couple of times, so it's great to get Jonas's opinion there. But also drive index and why that is important for the qualities that jonas is talking about throughout this episode we also talk about his binary video analysis which is his new app that he actually delivered and and talked through in the webinar which is a really interesting app that you can again check out on his speedworks website so i hope you enjoy this episode with jonas if you're building speed with your guys and that's an important part of their uh, of their sport definitely listen throughout this episode because uh it's, it's a great one with jonas and probably reinforces and plays on a lot of the themes that have come up with Stuart McMillan, with uh, james Wilde and various other people that have discussed speed training so hope you enjoy this episode with jonas This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Kitman Labs. So Kitman Labs partners with leading sports teams to help them consistently achieve the highest levels of performance by increasing the impact of their data. So over 200 teams across the globe rely on Kitman Labs' performance intelligence platform to quantify the cost of performance and injury and receive the right insights at the right time. Through unique outcome-driven analytics and the most advanced athlete management system, teams can align their organizations around a shared view of what it takes to drive performance and health and move at the speed of sport to adjust and continuously improve. If you want to know more about Kitman Labs, head over to www.win.kitmanlabs.com forward slash impact. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by iMeasureU. So used by leading sports practitioners and biomechanics researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field. IMU Step from iMeasureU is a dual sensor and app lower limb load monitoring tool which helps practitioners optimise return to play for running based sports. So U have just released their new and improved waterproof sensor Blue Trident which includes ultra high G capabilities to quantify high impact steps such as cutting, landing and sprinting, longer battery life to collect data all day, Real-time feedback to aid immediate interventions and faster workflow so practitioners can review long training sessions within minutes of training completion. iMeasureU, now part of Vicon, works with military pro and collegiate coaches and athletes from around the world, including the Australian Institute of Sport, US Department of Defence and collegiate and pro teams from around the world. If you want to get to know more about iMeasureU, head over to their website iMeasureU.com or follow them on Twitter or Instagram at iMeasureU. So without further ado, over to the episode with Jonas Dodu. Thanks for tuning into the Pace Performance Podcast. So this morning, I'm delighted to welcome for a long overdue part two, Jonas Dodu. So welcome to the podcast, mate. Hiya, good to see you again. And um, it's been great
1: watching the podcast dramatically evolve over the past couple of years, even to the fact that now, now we're on on uh, on YouTube essentially. So when you said uh, let's do another, one, I'm like, yeah, great. And then you're like, okay, it's so on YouTube. I'm like, we gotta wait, mate. We gotta be shaved.
0: Let's sort out my, my chin first before we get going. So awesome. No, really good. It is. It's a it's a weird one because if anyone doesn't know, and no one will know, why would they? Unless I've told them up until probably seven episodes ago, it was just a blank screen. No, there's no person there, which has completely uh, changed how I just how we interact and it's actually pretty put about 20% on the length of the podcasts Mm. just because the face and it's just yeah a little thing actually well not a little thing but seeing a person there rather than just a blank screen has changed the game definitely for me and just how it how it feels and yeah how you interact with the person on the other side so it's been great
1: yeah I mean look um what do they say like most of people's decisions are about you are made in the first 15 seconds of seeing you, right? If you walk into a job interview, they make that decision. Why? Body language. Uh, you're giving away so much information and, and providing feedback through how we see and how we move. And, you know, I, I talk a lot of my hands. I talk a lot of my body expressions. And, and funny enough, my daughter, like, you know, she screws up her face and you see everything of what she wants to say before she even says it. Um, so, um, yeah, for sure. I think it's a, it's a good uh, evolution, buddy.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I spoke to Lauren Landau, who's very much the same. Mm. And he and, I, and he was uh I don't know what he was talking about foot strength or something. He was he was banging his feet and I'm there thinking I'm, why am I banging my feet? I'm not yeah. I'm not talking about this. <laughs> I'm doing the same as him. I'm he's telling me about like scrunching up his toes and I'm doing the same under the desk. It's, yeah. yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's it's a good thing definitely a good thing yeah
1: i actually watched that podcast not too rec- uh, not too long ago and you know he's talking about um action of the foot talking about how talus and what happens during eversion or um during pronation and, and he's illustrating you know rear foot strike, pronation and then supination with some toe off you know so he's he's illustrating it as he's talking and you're, you're right it makes a lot more sense
0: yeah, absolutely. So I think it was, well, it was probably four years ago since we last spoke on the podcast. I think it was it four years, maybe three or four years at least. Yeah. But are you all right to give us a bit of a, an update on what's been going on since? And even even before that, a bit of background yeah. education and, and whatnot? Yeah, um, background education. Um, and, you know, I, you
1: can get a bit more of the background if you watch episode one. That's a bit of a plug for people to so nice. <laughs> the first one. Um, but um, I, I grew up playing sport, lots of different sport, was was always explosive and elastic, but couldn't stay in one piece. I've got terrible feet, terrible ankles, no movement in my toes. Um, but it sent me down a road to learn, to understand. I think originally it was to go and fix myself, was my biggest driver. Um, and then I got exposed to um, great coaches, great therapists. Um, and um, I did my master's thesis under the Dan Path, or, or studied him as my, as my thesis, and, and had an opportunity to do a PhD in, in sprinting or to go and try and coach someone to at least be a bit faster. And I, and I went down that route. So I started in rugby, ended up in athletics. And during my athletics career and my and my coaching, I got exposed back into rugby, um, and and then since that point, maybe over the past eight or nine years, I've I've worked with you know various individuals in, in rehab projects. Um, I've worked with various teams in in uh, short and long term projects, um, and really the past three years for me, I've um, been based in Loughborough, and. Um, I left for university with my elite squad of sprinters um, and then used essentially my down days. um, uh, 20% of my week I would spend either with Derby County um, at at one point with West Brom um, and with England rugby in the build up to the the world cup. So those have been my major projects. um, And alongside that I I run workshops. I I do a lot of coach education uh, and a lot of mentoring. So um, it's a, it's been a up and down journey, always driven by my hunger and curiosity about how to make people faster. Always, um, almost underpinned by my um, subconscious awareness of my bias. So my conscious awareness of my bias, and recognizing that actually. I've had some great performers. I've had several sub-10 runners, um, really successful female sprinters. I've worked with Greg Rubberford for two years in between his two Olympic medals. Um, I've um, been able to have what looks like a lot of success, take average athletes and make them good, take good athletes and make them great, um, and and work with pedestrians and and, and help them become, you know, more than just a, a Sunday warrior. But I've also been very inquisitive through sports science, very inquisitive, probably because I've been surrounded through British athletics by some great biomechanists and great strength and conditioning coaches. Um, And it's made me question, did my athletes do well because of me or despite? Did I just choose really good athletes who've chosen the right parents, who had good genetics? Um, and so because of that, it's always made me go, okay, that program worked. That person got a medal. That person's sub-ten, that person's you know, ranked number four in the world in the sprints, but could they be number one? You know, That person ran 994, but could they have run 985? Like I've got this, I've got this cons- constant um, need to reflect and ask myself, could that be better? Um, and so it's driven me down a road to um, developing through a labor of love, our, our binary video analysis app. And basically it's a poor man and dumb man's dartfish okay? <laughs> um, with an extra update of AI um, and an extra update of coaches driving the development process. Um, and, and really the, the big reason I've developed it is my coaching eye, the, the first thing Dan Path pushed us to learn as apprentices is, uh, and developers are coaching guy. He would say, "Leave the programming to me. Here's a program. Carry on with it. Don't worry because that could rack your brains for hours and hours a day. Instead, watch movement." watch video, watch from upstairs, watch from downstairs, zoom in, zoom out. And then when you've got this injury problem, understand what you can do from a movement perspective, from a coaching perspective, how you can create an environment that will distract the athlete from that that injury or that 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 pain um, and redirect their focus towards more effective um, movement and, and pain-free strategies. And so coaching I was something that I was was really hammered down very early for me. Um, and by accident, I realized that Coaching Eye was something that everyone wanted to learn from me. Coaching Eye, when people come and say, okay, what, what are the cues? What do you see? What are the cues? What do you see? And in fact, when when, when I moved down, even now, I send him video I say, what do you see? Literally just that, what do you see? And he might send me a line, he might send me a paragraph, he might send me three references to other articles to go and read. Um, and so I'm constantly trying to develop my Coaching Eye. What we've done here with binary is we've developed an app that allows you to say rather than have a debate about stride length versus stride frequency, what's more important? What model, what shape is is the priority? Is it this big, long shape? Is it a bit of a smaller shape with more frequency um, in deceleration mechanics? What's the priority? Do you want to have a big, long limb outside of your center of mass? Do you want it to be a bit closer, but a bit, you drop your, your center of mass a bit lower and um, uh, Max v-, v mechanics, what should our wickets be teaching? What do we want to get out of it? There's, there's so much debate and lack of consensus in sports science that if you're an inquisitive coach, you can easily get lost, easily buy into one side of the argument. One, the most popular person on Instagram, or the most popular um, CPD course. Whereas with binary, I'm saying, take a step back. What's our priority? Velocity, that's our priority. And what do we want the shape of velocity to look like? We want it to keep getting faster. Um, uh, if we can find a way to make it get faster, really steep, and keep it continuing to get faster, we have high acceleration and we have high velocity. We have a good RF and we have a great DRF, right? That's, that's JB Marin's language. Um, and the reality is what binary does for us is it helps us take a step back from our bias and go, based on what we're seeing, what's happening with the data? What's really happening. And in elite settings, people have had Laveg and, and Speed Gun and Video Analysis, 3D analysis, OptiJump. People have got these tools. 1080, great tool, Dyno Speed, very similar tool. They've all got these tools that give you some of the information or all of the information. And all I've been trying to do is go, okay, this is what I've experienced. This has helped me in my journey. How do I simplify it, distill it, and make it available to anyone that has an Apple device? Yeah, at least a, a, most, a, a more recent one, iPhone 5, not, not good. Yeah, but <laughs> uh, I, I have an iPhone 7. It records at 200 frames per second. It does the job. Yeah, most phones these days are doing the job. And if you have a really new iPhone, well, you've got the LADAR, you've got the, 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 You basically got an uh, even more accurate way of creating data, but I digress. The point is that throughout my whole journey, I've seen great performers. I've seen people perform above what I expected them to do. And I've seen people underperform based on my expectations. And my expectations were probably based on my bias. This is what I think good movement looks like and fast speed looks like. And I think over the past five years, um, I've been able to take a step back from my bias or at least combine my bias with reality, with real data, with real numbers. And, and actually maybe maybe close the line between what I perceive them to be able to do and what they actually do. Um, long-winded way of describing it, but hopefully
0: it's, um, it's... Fantastic. I know we've got a, a, a list of things to cover, but I'm going to dive into some of this because it's it's really good. Firstly, reflection. Yeah. Your reflection process. Not mm. in terms of like you've seen an athlete, you've done something, you've gone back and reflected, yeah. but just in terms of your global practice and how you go about things what's your process mm. for, for for that do you have one do you are you conscious of that's a process that you go through on a regular basis yeah. just so, whilst-
1: so i guess during my degree and during the master my master's in coaching science so it, was, it really wasn't about the science of 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 um sports science or anything like that but really more about psychology about cpd about being about expertise, development of expertise. Um, and so I, I had constant reminders throughout my masters and my degree that my mum was right, yeah? And 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 I have never told her this and I won't because she'll be too <laughs> too smart. But my mum my has always been someone who, um, if she makes a mistake, she won't let you forget you've made that mistake straight away. She wants you to own up to it. And as soon as you own up to it, she'll give you a hug and say, it's all right. So she might be telling you off, and then once, and, and until, and if you don't, um, basically, if you don't submit to her, she'll keep telling you off and she'll give you more and more reason to be upset. Yeah. And then once you submit, she'll, she'll turn off and she'll say, oh, well, we've learned now. <laughs> and, and that's the kind of process that I go through. So like if something, and often it's when things go wrong that we reflect, right. Um, but in both scenarios, when things go right and go wrong, it's important to go, it's, it's, it's almost like um, competitive anxiety and, and managing your anxiety. If you, can, if you can recognize that you've made a mistake or that you're anxious or you're scared or whatever it is, if you can recognize it and accept it, it puts you in a place where you can address it, manipulate it, maybe even harness it. But until you recognize it, you can't. So for me, my um, learning through my masters specifically, learning from great people, I always notice that no matter what they did, they look back and say it could be better, or where could it be better? At least they ask that question. Um, so when I think about reflection, I think about reflection in action. Yeah, some people say I'm I'm a I'm a great scrambler. No matter what the session plan is, I will not. I'm I'm rarely scared or even intimidated about changing the plan on the go, within the set. Yeah, within the minute. If I see something and I think it can be better, I'll, I'll make the change within reason. And, um, and so there's this reflection in action, and I think I can only do that because I've been coaching for so long, and I've coached so many different types of people, and I've made enough mistakes, and I've had enough regret for making those mistakes that it, it really influences my decision making. And there's a reflection almost on action, like reflection in in hindsight. Um, my wife, uh, my wife is an Olympian. My wife's what Is, was an uh, elite coach, um, has coached to a really high level in in, in multi-events and long jump. Um, And she was probably the biggest influencer on my coaching philosophy, and specifically around some training design, a session design. Um, And she is an important, reflective, almost mirror for me. Um, She knows what to say, when to say it. She really knows what not to say that's that's probably her gift. that's what I've learned from her is that I give too much information I'm too honest sometimes uh, and I'm not just too honest I'm also a bit black and white so like I'm I'm, I'm a bit too direct sometimes um, a bit too frank and she's almost the opposite. so she's I, I learned from her because the more I piss her off, I realized oh that could piss someone else off as well right um, and so yeah I think I think I've gone with this question but yeah re- reflection for me is a big deal. Because if we can, the better we can reflect, the better we can accelerate our development. And I think maybe that's always been my issue, is that I'm in a rush. And, and not, not a bad rush, but I don't like wasting time. I like being efficient with time. So if, if I apply that to my own philosophy as a coach, it means that whatever I can learn in a year, the question is, can I learn that in six months? Now, a great coach, Michael Aflalka, says, you can't microwave experience. And it's true, yeah. Even if you learn every single thing on the artist course in Wikipedia, everything to do with speed right now, over this six weeks, seven weeks of COVID, does that make you a better coach? It actually you might go worse because you've got now more information, you don't know what to do with it, you know all these new rules, but you don't know how to apply it into your environment. Some of them seem like they contradict to what you were already thinking and um you now have to practice and make sure they all balance up within like a training scheme. Um, and so I don't know where I've, I've gone off of that on a tangent there. That's all right. Don't, don't apologize. It's good. Yeah. So yeah. essentially, I, I think um, reflection is important. I think having people in your network that you can reflect with is really important. I think having one area where you're almost challenging yourself off of your reflections and Challenge yourself to go and learn some more information. It's important having um, a good resource that isn't information, but it's more knowledge. So it's some information distilled is really important. Then having a network of mentors and mentees and colleagues where you can get some mentorship from and turn that that knowledge into wisdom. That that's really the process for me. That's what I'm really trying to do for myself and for my clients.
0: Mm-hmm. Just going back to how you week and months and work is structured
1: yeah and this is this is a,
0: a, just a, a throwaway comment i think one of us made on on the whatsapp when we were when we we're arranging this and that was the business side of it mm. not to go too much into the covid stuff and how that's affected because i think that's that's probably been done but in terms yeah. of you developing the business and having a bit having to have a business head on as well as a coach's head how difficult's that been for you and we'll come to some of the stuff you've done webinars and things later right. on but how how tough's that been for you? That's been really tough. Like I I've always believed coaching should be selfless
1: because because athletes generally are selfish, yeah, and we need that balance. Um, and so I've done that. But if through doing that, people see the website, people see the successes, the consultancies, the athletes' performances, but they don't see my bank account, um, and they don't they don't see the fact that I I spend eighty percent of my time on the track but track only brings in 20% of our household income. So I spend all my time chasing consultancies, doing extra work, working till midnight, um, just so I can coach. That's the luxuries of being an elite coach. Most of us are doing other work, or just the coaching track and field in general. Most people are doing other work, and the passion of the sport is driving them to the track on a daily basis. that was fine when I was young and dumb and single and no kids. And then I had Logan, so that was five and a half years ago. And actually that was all right, but even then that, there was a sign. So when I had my first son, I was driving back and forth to Bath from London to do my work there. And, and Alan Ryan, an amazing s and amazing coach, amazing coach, um, uh, really influenced me. And, and he, he had, he's had a massive influence on me and my philosophy. I was driving back and forth and he's got a number of kids. You know, he's Irish. They've always got 12 kids each, right? And, <laughs> and I remember uh, we had Logan and there was a bit of an issue. I had got to uh, Bath. I had just arrived and my, my wife was having an issue and, and I had to go all the way back home and I had to apologise to him. And he said that like, he, he totally understood. And, and he even said to me, have I thought about what the next step is for me and my family? Um, and, and I didn't really think about it. I thought i would just carry on the way I was carrying on. Um, but I was burning myself out. I was, I was just getting fatter and fatter. That hasn't stopped. But um, I was just getting more and more stressed. My hair was just falling out. And, and I was actually starting from that point. I noticed that the stress and pressure of being a dad and being the main source of income and also being a lead coach in elite group, which I am their dad as well. Um, and trying to run a business or at least keep everything balanced was too difficult and actually over the years, I've noticed it even more and more, is that if I really want, and look, there's going to be coaches out there who find a really good balance, yeah? So those are the the kind of people that I would aspire to be like. But in my experience, the way way I invest my energy into my coaching, into my athletes, I realised that um, my family, my kids, um, needed that energy as well. And so when I was giving that energy to both parties, I was was like burning the candle from both ends so the small things that we've done moving to Loughborough because I was working in Derby County and it was all close it was real easy my athletes all of my consultancy being in one place at least for a year or two made sense but then for example I moved to to Loughborough I worked with Derby County it was very easy it was very well balanced Then I started working for England. So I'm driving back down to London now and even further than London. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm driving down to Um, (laughs) Bagshot. And so, you know, we had a, a, yeah. So I think the balance for me has been very difficult. And I'm in debt as a result. And I would, would I go back and change it? I really don't know because also I got in, I got completely I've been in the deep end in the deepest ocean of coaching and I've been experienced and um, exposed to amazing opportunities, amazing players and athletes and systems and coaches, and um, no one everyone says high performance sport is not healthy for the, for the athletes, their bodies, for for us and our emotional uh, emotional energy and all of those things. So I don't know if I would do it differently in the past but definitely over the past year and going forwards, I, I have to look at things differently. If I want to sustain, if I want to be um, able to sustain high intensity coaching and be a good dad and not be super fat and, and be emotionally stable and emotionally healthy, there's definitely a need to find a balance. And, and and the last point on this, and I won't talk about specifics, I see many, many coaches who, who really shoot up to the top of, let's say, of of whatever it is. Yeah, they've got a really high status. Uh, who follow managers around? Maybe when managers are going from club to club, or follow athletes around when they're going from country to country when they're relocating. Who have two? Uh, who've had two two marriages? Who don't have kids that really like them? Who um, who have lots of money in their account, but when they go home and sit down they, and they, and really look around, they you know they've maybe sacrificed their family. For their career, and I was very happy to sacrifice myself and my own energy and my own social time for my career, and that's that's paid off. But I'm not happy to sacrifice my family for my career, and that's been an important turning stone for me. And, and me and my wife have conversations all the time. There's things that we want to do, there's athletes we want to help that we want to relocate, and then we ask each other, each other but when in. In the middle of December when it's cold and dark and the kids are annoyed and we're, we're I'm yellow, no longer brown, and we're all just peed off, are we going to be still um, effective as coaches? And if, if the answer is no, if, if during the most stressful times you don't think you can carry on committing to what you're doing, then you shouldn't take it on because that's what you need to be prepared for. When things go smoothly, that's the easy time. The hardest, most challenging, and sometimes the most exciting time is when everything's going wrong, because that makes you have to adapt. You either adapt or you die. Um, and if you don't have that adaptive energy because you're, uh, you're spending with your family, then the coaching dies. If you if you don't have that adaptive energy for your family because you're spending it with your athletes, then your family dies, essentially. And so the the reality is finding that balance has been really important for me knowing my worth has been important for me um, um showing my work in my unique way i'm a bit dyslexic i like to read but i even just yesterday i did a tweet uh, spelling mistakes everywhere um so um i'm not going to be writing the most informative blogs yeah but i i know my topic i know my subject i know coaching i know people and emotional intelligence um and uh, I have a, uh, I like to summarize and simplify things. So I, uh, finding my business side has been difficult because not many people do things the way I do it. And so I didn't have a model or a template to copy. Um, but actually my business and, and mentoring and consultancy and stuff has happened by accident more than on purpose people come to me and have come to me and ask me more and more questions it's made me go oh you're an expert or you're 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 an elite person and you're asking me this question that I think is fundamental that's my bias it's fundamental to me but it might not be to you maybe there's a product there maybe I can replicate that and share that with more people do you think more people be interested so I've, I've gone into business almost not by looking for a product and trying to sell it I've I've almost been just people coming to take this product, and I've gone. Mm, I, I should repackage that and make that available for other people. So I think I've been talking for ten minutes on this, but um, um, hopefully that that is a bit of a summary for you.
0: Yeah, I mean you can see we're nodding along there because I've in a in a diff- slightly different context, but gone through exactly the same thing. And but when you say about the not looking for a business, not looking for a product, but people actually coming to you, that in that immediately makes me think. Well, that's the key to longevity. It's not just something you crowbar into your life because it might—I don't know—make a few quid. It's what you're doing already that you're just modifying and tweaking to make a business out of it. Yeah, and that's yeah. that's really what you're doing. And that's that's not a businessman. That's not a businessman talking. That's a coach talking to make a business. And I think that that's really interesting to me. And I've been through exactly the same thing with. Prioritizing and and trying to, and I've done it loads of times as we all have. Think of an idea, right? I'll start that now. It'll take a few hours a week. And you start, you get going, you realize that Monday, Tuesday is taken up, and you just think, this is just not sustainable. Yeah. And, And life is suffering as a result. Yeah. And I think one thing that I've done over the last probably certainly a year is try to let things manifest for a little bit longer before pulling the trigger. And you can manifest and manifest and manifest and nothing ever gets done. I, I understand that. But just trying to weigh up, is this is this doable? Is this, is this got longevity? Can I commit the time? And then pulling the trigger two months after I probably would have done before and yeah. just having to back out because yeah. I just can't keep it going. So I think that's one, yeah, that's definitely one thing that probably resonates with me on that. Yeah, for me it's love. Like
1: I, I, know that if I love something, and it in, and, uh, and I might love it because it's interesting, because it's a puzzle. I like puzzles um, because it's challenging and forcing me to 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 be outside my comfort zone. But if you love something, generally, when you're tired or when you're pissed off at it, you don't give up. Yeah, and and maybe it makes you work harder. Um, you take a step back from it, maybe you sleep on it, and, and actually you have some deep reflections and, and you're better at it. Um, so for me, it's always been about the love. If I love a topic, if I love a subject, then I'm going to, uh, generally I'm going to be good at it and I'm going to understand it. And, and, and through that understanding, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull it apart like a video machine. I'm going to open it up and look at all the parts and I'm going to pull it back together and I'm going to summarize it really simply. Um, and that's how I like to just live in my world. And it just happens that that's how people enjoy learning uh, on deep topics. They just want to know the heuristics. They just want to know the rules of thumb, the KPIs. Um, you know, it's one thing to know the rules, but if you need to apply those rules in your setting and break those rules, do you just need to know the rules before you break the rules or do you need to know these broken rules too? Because that's actually real, real, really real in your setting. And that is... In uh, you know, if you can make your players better, faster, healthier over the next six weeks during your preseason, that's going to dictate a lot about their ability to train over the next season. So it's it's one thing to know basic mechanics; another thing to know what can I do right now, next week, to make my players better, to make me better as a as a coach.
0: Cool. I'm going to come back when we chat afterwards. Yeah, that's on the list to chat about. Just cool. just saying, just so I don't forget. But we've got the we've got the list and acceleration yes that's where we're going to spend our bit for the next what five minutes ish cool just to dumb it down for the simpletons like myself hmm. acceleration principles what are the principles that you i suppose live by when it comes to acceleration yeah. that probably gives a nice little global view and then yeah. we can dive a bit deeper on that okay cool um So,
1: I mean, if we're just talking about the basics of acceleration um, or the basics of of even sprinting, the the goal is to get from A to B. Yeah, That's why I always start with this. So the goal is to get from A to B. So if we're talking 100 meters, the goal is to get from zero to 100 as fast as possible. And and obviously we can break that into phases. Um, And when we're speaking more specifically about initial acceleration, Obviously, we can, uh, in in team sports and even in track and field, we can measure a 10-meter time, right? Five-meter or 10-meter time is traditionally used to to get an understanding of someone's ability to accelerate. Um, But And many of my clients and many teams will put down timing gates. You know, if they want to do speed training in their club, they, they believe that if they put down timing gates and they drive intent, and this is an important thing a lot of people talk about, that sometimes the biggest priority in speed training is just getting the players to try hard and actually intent and in high intent, high intensity in their effort and the speed and the timing gates can help that. Um, and then they give them a time, but just like and I might be throwing it out there, uh, throwing something out there, but just like kind of movement jump, yeah. If your if your goal is jump height only or just like a 10-metre run, if your goal is your 10-metre time only, then you might be missing a trick because I can run to 10 and you can run to 10 in the same time, yeah? But I might be at a higher velocity than you. And all that means is we've got to 10 at the same time. Maybe you've been a drag car and you've got there by really your first four steps going, and then actually your rate of acceleration drops off. Yeah. So you did most of your work in the front side of the run. And maybe I'm, I'm, uh, I'm still a drag car, but I've got a, a tiny bit less horsepower, but maybe I've got less drag. Like literally I've got less air resistance. And so I might not go like this and get to five meters in, um, in 0.90. Let's say you get there in nine zero. Yeah. And I get there in one Oh, but we still both get to 10 meters in 1.7. Yeah. So you've clearly gone, and then you've patted out a bit, yeah? And I've gone, and so I've got there at the same time as you, but I'm accelerating still. You give me three more steps, I'm in front, maybe even one more step, I'm in front of you, yeah? I'm still getting faster, okay? So when we talk about acceleration, we've got to be careful that we're not setting a goal over 10-meter time and encouraging a technique and a strategy that gets us there fast but puts us in a bad position. And, and, and then you think rugby, you think, okay, why why does it matter? If my aim is to get to the 10 meters, if my aim is to get to my defender or my attacker um, as quick as possible, and they're 10 meters in front of me, I just need to be there as quick as possible. And you could say, yes, 30, 40 years ago, if everyone's just running route one, straight line, and not that they, they only did that last, but mm-hmm. the traditional forward and traditional rugby player was just running straight line, like like bull rock, just. just head down going forward but actually you look at you know you listen to someone like Franz Bosch or, or John Pryor or, or Dean Benton um, and Eddie Jones they talk a lot about option positions right you need to be able to get to 10 fast but be in a position where you can organise your body to make a decision and that position is often in a position where you can remain reactive with your feet and you've still got control of your centre of mass you're not over rotating yeah, you're still you're in a position with your pelvis and your trunk where you can rotate and you can do other actions. Where you can scan if you need to, and then use your upper body if you need to, while still using your legs to push you to go faster. And that position is uh, an efficient position. So when we go back to acceleration, these two options or these two, um, these two me and you racing. The reality is, by the time I get to ten meters, I need to be in an efficient position to make a decision in team sports. And I also need to be in an efficient position to keep getting faster in, in, a, line, in a linear sport. So for me, efficient acceleration, no matter where we're at, looks the same. You, you're, you maintain a frequency and a stiffness that allows you to be energy um, energy efficient, but also be in a position to make choices and make decisions. So that, that would be my, my first start of acceleration. I haven't talked about postures. I haven't talked about shapes. I haven't talked about um, what are the fundamentals of athletics in, in 100 metres versus hurdles versus maybe long jump. That, that, that's all a secondary discussion. The first almost thought experiment is to be clear about the fact that there is a difference between being effective which is essentially to do with your, your kinetics. Can you produce the right forces um, and throw yourself where you need to go? That's, again, JB and RF, yeah? What ratio of your forces are you directing forwards? That's how effective you are. And you can be really effective without being efficient. You can We can both run a 170, and we could say 170 is the time that we need in our sport, but I might do it in a way that really allows me to, one, save energy, two, um, being in a fit in a position to make a decision or three being in a position to keep getting faster um, that might take less uh, more stress off of my uh, lower limb um, and that might just give me an, a bit of an energy reserve that I can use better to continue going or for repetitive actions in
0: the game just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Jonas, hope you're enjoying part one. So over in part two, we discuss more around where to focus our time when we're working with sprinters versus team sport athletes. We discuss driving decks and why that is important, an important metric for to develop the principles that Jonas talks about in part one. And we also talk about a little bit around game speed, but that is going to be developed upon in a part two, which is not yet recorded but will be in the very near future because I could have gone for hours and hours with Jonas uh, and got into a lot of depth with um, sprint typing and and lots of other questions that I had for him but we just didn't get time and wanted to get this in in this episode so I hope you enjoyed part one but a fantastic part two coming up but just before we do dive into part two, I wanna say a big thanks to Hawking Dynamics for sponsoring this episode today. So Hawking Dynamics offer the world's first wireless force plate testing system. So the Hawking Dynamics system is built around what coaches want so they can test in the real world and not just in the lab. So they're able to capture reliable data on all athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor progress from their cloud-based system from anywhere in the world. head over to the website uh, which is hawkingdynamics.com um, which you can I mean, you can also schedule a demo and follow them on Twitter at hawkingdynamics. And also sponsoring this episode today is Black Box Fitness. So Black Box Fitness are a sports performance equipment manufacturer based in Belfast in Northern Ireland. So if you are looking for a full gym fit out, if you're lucky enough to be looking for a full gym fit out or just want to add Additional pieces to what you've already got, whether that be barbells, dumbbells, plates, maybe a new rack, some flooring, etc. etc. Have a little look at what Black Box Fitness can offer. So you can head to their website, which is blkboxfitness.com, or for a more informal view of what they do, head over to their Instagram because they've got some really cool images of some of the recent projects that they've run in Australia in the UK, in Europe, et cetera. So head over to their Instagram, which is at BLKBoxFitness, and they're the same on Twitter. You mentioned at the start when you are talking about the binary app, yeah. about step length, step frequency, deciding mm. which one to focus on. Rather than going into the, I suppose, semantics of how the binary app can help, because we get yeah. to that a little bit later, what's your thought process when you're looking at them to I suppose, each side of the continuum, where you're going to spend your time Mm. and where Uh, do you think people struggle with that? Do you think there's too much focus on that? So I think there's too much focus on it, yes.
1: Um, I think, uh, or I know that the effective and efficient strategies are about the best combination of your spatial-temporal characteristics, so your ground contact, uh, airtime, um, step length, um, and if you're going to look at a drive index or you're going to look at some kind of way of combining those numbers, they, that, uh, uh, it's all about a, a combination. So neither is it about maximizing your stride length, neither is it about maximizing your stride frequency. It's about finding this optimal because of the fact that our limbs don't work in isolation energy transfers through our pelvis to each limb. So it's not about getting the most out of the pushing leg and getting a massive toe off distance and making a massive shape. Because if you do that, what you may end up doing is not having any pre-tension in your swing leg that's in front. So, and if you really think back to what are the biggest priorities in sprinting or in performance, it's one, to project yourself towards where you want to go from A to B, and it's another thing to be prepared for the next step. Those are the two priorities. Project and be prepared. And if you over-project, you're under-prepared. And if you're over-prepared, you're under-projected, or you under-project. So we're, we're always looking for this balance. And, and the great thing about binary is that we've got all of the spatial temporal numbers, we've got all of the angles and orientation numbers, um, we've got everything, most things that you can get, no, everything that you can get from motion analysis, we can get, but if you're only going, going to go for one thing, I'd go for velocity, or I'd go for acceleration, I'll go for the, the, the reality of the, of the fact that we want um, to be fast, we want to spike our acceleration and maximize our speed. It's those two things. So we care about speed and and acceleration. Now, acceleration as a number or power as a number, normalized, average, horizontal, external power. Yeah. But this is called power. Yeah. um, Versus acceleration kind of give you a similar thing. And the great thing about them is they take into context, the, the velocity you're moving at and the rate of change as well. So Those would be metrics that I would hang my hat on because they don't tell a lie. you, You can make a perfect shape, and if your acceleration is less, your velocity is less, it's not fast. It's not what you really want. With that, you need to take into account that people develop over time. Sometimes when they learn something new, it slows down and it gets faster. So there is a bit of art behind recognizing um, what you should hang on to and be patient with and what complements that exercise. If that's a shape you want to do, and if that's a, something you want to do and you're running, are you complementing it with, with some strategies around training it, creating work capacity, increasing the mechanical properties of that muscle group or that system? If you combine teaching and training, then that new movement pattern is more likely to be successful. But regardless, look at velocity, look at acceleration. Rarely is it something we can look at because we don't have the tools. We don't have a, a, a 3D Viacon system at a pitch or in your clinic. Um, and and now we do.
0: Is it only experience that can allow you to have the thought process of, I've changed something. Mm-hmm. It's not happened straight away. And then clicking, but I think it will happen. Versus I've changed something. It hasn't happened. I don't think it's ever going to happen. I need to rethink Mm. Is it only experience that can allow you no, to differentiate? No, okay. no I, th- I think, um, my, for me,
1: pretension and preparation for the step. Okay, so two things. We want we want the kinetics and kinematics. So we, we, we want to definitely produce the forces. We definitely want to project ourselves where we need to go. And we definitely need to be prepared for the step. i said this before. So no matter what change we make, we have to make sure that there's an acceptable bandwidth of projection and preparation. So let's say velocity goes down because we're working on, on something and, and, and we've interrupted the habitual flow of the athlete. We've maybe given a, a taboo internal cue, but it was necessary for them to make sense of it. Then we've played with some drills to give them some context and for them to find a feeling. So that internal cue is now poo pooed because now they understand the feeling of it, and then they're working on it. Sometimes when you understand the feeling of it, but you're still working on it, it you, you might decrease maybe your velocity. You may your your rate of force development might reduce a bit because you want a bit more control. Yeah, so velocity might go down, but you want to see the classic spatial temporal variables: ground contact time, step length. You want to see rhythm. That's what you want to see. Even if they get a bit slower and even if you're coaching something within a session and you're having undulations really in how how well they're applying the skill, you want to see flow. You want to see a gradual change. You want to see that if you looked at your step length, that every step is getting a bit longer. If you looked at ground contact time, every ground contact time is reducing. If you're looking at initial acceleration, you want to see that the ratio of air, air to ground is changing and that they're spending less time in the air, more time in the ground in the first step, and that this relationship remains at least for your first three to four steps. And then we start to see a break, a break point, which is essentially where they start to spend a bit more time in the air and less time on the ground. So there are some rhythms that we expect in running, smooth flow, like a, a plane taking off, yeah, you want to see a smooth flow. Um, and there are some rhythms that we want to see in velocity, velocity gradually getting faster. And, and once we understand those rhythms and we want to stick to those rhythms, we understand that there are also rhythms in all of the other characteristics. Gradual change really is the, is the name of the game. And John Kiley, I think maybe Craig Pickering had a paper on smoothness. And it's the best paper ever for me. I love John Kylie's work because it's just a great summary of what we want in our data. We talk about smoothness and we, and we know what smooth, silky movement might look like or smell like or sound like, but we don't know what smooth, silky data should look like, smell like or sound like, and actually, it's very similar. It's very, very similar. You can look at someone's data and see their step-level gradually, um, gradually changing and suddenly there's a, a bad rhythm. You know, suddenly, you know, it was dropping by. It was increasing by ten centimeters each step, and then suddenly it increases or decreases by twenty centimeters. There's something going on, or it stays the same when it should have been changing. There's something going on. Um, So it's not just experience. I think if you know what to see in good data and good movement, you can figure out um, and decipher what you see in your environment.
0: Let's have a little talk about team sport athletes versus sprinters obviously you're working with both so ideal candidate to talk Mm. about this topic just thinking about the practitioner in a team sport environment I've got 20 minutes I've got incorporate that um, sorry I've got to have a warm-up incorporate in that 20 minutes and I've got 5-10 minutes with my athletes yeah how can they go about trying to best utilise that time and do maybe work on the front end to enable that to be as efficient as possible, but going in the right areas, focusing on the right areas. What will be your process for them to identify that? I think this
1: is where like, I've always talked about projection, reactivity and switching. I've always said that that's a really important umbrella terms that help me make sense of the world. And I think if I was going to focus on acceleration, and I wanted to maximize the learning as well as the mechanical load or development of specific muscle groups, I'd pull the pulley. I'd pull exogeny. I'd pull a sled. I will do something resisted, right? Um, and a lot of our clients and teams have, especially in this new, in preparation for preseason, they've bought 20 exogenies and they've linked them all to the walls. Players can't share equipment. They've, they've bought 20 exogenies. They've put them all in a wall and they recognize that the resisted running, and I had a report yesterday from um, uh, one of our consultants and consultancies, and, and the resisted running for him does lots of the teaching for him. So I talked about projection, reactivity, switching. More recently, I've been almost just dumbing it down and saying, "Well, projection." I really think is orientation because pro- when you say projection, we're not really saying where which direction you want to project. I feel like if we're talking about orientation, we're talking about some of the summaries from all of the resistance, uh, resistance running. research, which is RF again. Keep coming back to it. Are you able to um, project a large amount of your force in the direction you want to go? Is there a large ratio of force going forwards, going horizontal? So for me, that's one of my first priorities, orientation. And I'm going to use resisted running for it. Another priority is range of motion. Um, If you have a large range of, a relatively large range of motion on the front and the backside, of your running cycle, not just the front side, not just the back side. If you have a, large, a relatively large range of motion on both sides of the flexing leg and the extending leg, then that tells me two things. It tells me that your extending leg, you've pushed your center of mass outside and away from your center of support, yeah? So you've had a nice extension through your posterior chain. So great, you've got a large range of motion in the back side. On the front side, if at the moment of toe off, when you finish extending, your knee um, is relatively high, yeah, even in acceleration, so we're saying your hip angles maybe closer to 90 degrees than 110 degrees, then clearly during the step, your thigh has punched forwards. But if at the moment of toe-off, when you finish extending, your, your front thigh is actually down here, then clearly during the stride, your thigh didn't come forward quick enough. So at the moment of toe-off is a great time to see, okay, what's happening? with extending leg, what's happening with the thigh in front. If at the moment of toe off, your extension leg is here and your thigh is all the way up here, but you're in an acceleration pose, clearly you haven't done enough to push the ground away and you focus too much on flexing your limb. So finding an effective range of motion in your legs during projection and orientating yourself forwards is like, it, it just describes a lot of things. So, But for a novice, novice coach, I just want to make sure, are, are the forces going forwards Are use a sled? Are they utilising their range of motion? If not, then why? Is it because they're not pushing against the ground? Or is it because they're not punching their knee forwards? And the nice thing about punching your knee forwards whilst pushing against the ground is your, um, it pushes your centre of mass out in front. It makes it easier to orientate your forces forwards. So this RF puzzle that that's the, all our real goal is can be solved by... Um, orientate yourself forwards and separating your limbs really well. So once you've done that, that's the projection part done. That's the pushing part done. Then you've got to be prepared for the next step. So then the question is, once they've done these actions and then they swap their limbs, does their shin land in a position where it's stiff, the ankle is stiff, the heel doesn't drop, the shin is stiff, it's stable, and allows the hip to extend early? or does the shin land vertical? The heel drops, the shin has to roll forwards before the hip can push again. And if you're in that position that's less stiff, that's less reactive. Do you want some compression, some load before you explode? Yes, there's many performers that can have a bigger touchdown distance, and during a tiny bit of deceleration on the step, and tiny bit of braking. It, they almost use that time to multiply um, and potentiate the extension, right? They, they're getting that high-centric to then load the concentric action. So fine, and so, but there's a bandwidth. There's landing too far behind and too stiff and not enough um, pressure to push, and there's landing too far out in front and almost decelerating too much. So this—that's that's that's five or six minutes talking about what I would be summarizing for a coach. So I'll go back to it. If you orientate yourself well and go forwards with good range of motion in your legs and then switch your limbs so you can be reactive and do it again, then I, I think nearly all performers can do that. Rugby, football, forwards, backs. There's a bandwidth to it. Maybe you get a bit less out the back, a bit less out the front. Maybe you're landing a bit further out in front, a bit further out behind, but I'm talking about centimetres. And But generally, the, the summary is the same for everybody. And so when we look at a team sport player if i was in a setting and i had 20 athletes i would just be getting them to pull heavy things recognize how to orientate themselves well with a good range of motion the heavy the heavier it is the more horizontal i have to be and actually the better i have to switch because i have no airtime yeah if more horizontal you are you don't have airtime no airtime less time to be prepared yeah i would pull medium things because I still have to orientate myself, but I have a bit more time. I'll be pulling medium weight because it gives me a bit more velocity, it's more challenging. I'd be running without any resistance. Same same drill, same task. And I think that differential loading allows them to explore different strategies to do the same task. So I've, it's just movement variability. It's just giving them options. So like the, there's a discussion with one of our one of our coaches, Owen, and he's written a nice article that basically is, Are we doing resisted running for the physical mechanical loading or are we doing it for the teaching and the differential learning and and almost creating a constraint for these guys to make sense of the world and and to to explore different strategies? I think we're doing both. I think on some days um, we do minimal amounts of runs and we're really just using resisted running for teaching and potentiation. And I think other days and for a number of years, and again, Alan Ryan in pre-season with Bath maybe seven years ago, really figured out that large amounts of resisted running um, done with variability and combined with plyometrics allowed us to create a massive work capacity to do anything else when it came to speed work. Because um, it it meant that we had lots and lots of contacts, high velocity contacts into the ground, conditioning Achilles, conditioning soleus, conditioning foot position, um, conditioning the knee to be stable, the hip to be the prime mover, really locking in lumbar's paradox and just making sure these guys push through their bums and stabilize through their feet. And it, and it enabled us to then, when we moved to, to either more pre-planned actions or more rugby-related stuff, the, the guys just seemed to, to to be able to tolerate it more than usual. Lower limb injuries went went away. Um, hamstring stuff minimized. And and, and actually, um, Al seemed to see, see that when he dropped some gym work on a specific day and replaced it more of resisted running, that they didn't just run fast and run PBs and run fast times on GPS. Their next gym session, they also came in and they seemed to be wired, yeah. So um, again, long winded, but I think this, for me the summary is: if we clarify that our goal for all our performers is to orientate large forces forwards with a decent range of motion, and to make sure that we we taper that to make sure we can be prepared for the next step, then our RF will be good, but our DRF will also be good, and we won't have these 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 um. Uh, I guess these—I uh, don't know—flattening of our acceleration curves. Yeah, so that—that that to me is the the big deal. That's easy to coach. That's easy to do in large squads because you've really got two two goals. Go forwards. When you pull something heavy and you don't orientate yourself forward, you don't go anywhere. So it's great for athletes to feel because when they pull something heavy. And suddenly they change something about their synchronization of their limbs or sequence of their movement um, or spine discipline. Because the priority is really us. Do you have good spine discipline? Do you have good shin discipline? And the shins will tell you a story about the whole run just by looking at the shins, right? Um, that's really easy to teach. Because if, you don't, if you're trying to pull something heavy with bad spine discipline and shin discipline, you won't go anywhere. You just won't go anywhere. You won't move anywhere. And you'll go flat-footed. You'll feel like you're over-rotating. You'll feel unstable. So the athletes figure it out. And the athletes that are motor morals and don't figure it out, that's when you intervene. Um, but if you have tools that teach what you want for you and you just have to provide some feedback, then you can get large changes in, in um, acceleration and velocity within large squads. You don't have to be super coach to, to make those changes happen.
0: Um, so last week on your webinar, mm. we, you spoke about drive index. Can you explain drive index for us? Yes, for sure. So drive index is a term
1: that I first learned from James Wild, and I can't really find much apart from, um, and I always get it wrong if it's Samazino or the Bezodis brothers, but one of those guys has done some really cool research, um, and we see it in great acceleration. We see that great accelerators are able to have high rates of acceleration really early and high and relatively high frequency early. I, people say I'm biased by frequency. My wife says I'm biased by frequency. But the way they do it is not by having a short ground contact time. They actually increase their ground contact time or at least they increase their um, contact length and their, their toe-off distance. So how much extension they get from their bum and measured at the moment of toe off yeah so what is this nice long line and the distance between their hip and their foot so they can really do a big extension but they spend no time in the air so what you do by doing that is that dan says you can't repeat it to pay paul i think in these scenarios they kind of are they're finding a way to make sure that they orientate large forces forwards but spend minimal time doing it and um And so drive index really starts to illustrate the fact that great accelerators might have a drive index of of maybe close to two, right? They are spending very little time in the air and then they are spending far more time on the ground, yeah? So you might average two over four or five steps. And really for me, my main use of drive index is really for initial acceleration. We can apply it to to upright running because we see the ratios. Maybe the the great sprinters are at a drive index of maybe 0.8, 0.85, maybe 0.9, Um, upright running. But the biggest deal for me is looking at the beginning, finding ways to rob airtime. That's really the summary for for me when it comes to driving next. I want to rob airtime, replace it with some ground time. And then that essentially, if I do those two things, it means the only way I've done it is by throwing myself forwards and um, being reactive and catching my step. That's really the, the two priorities. So drive index and my summary about orientation and switching. It's really a similar thing, in my mind, yeah. In my in my bias, in, in my way of thinking.
0: I'm gonna go against Ben Rosenblatt here because he was like, "Just let Jonas go. Just let him go. will yeah, be, goes, I, <laughs> It'll know. be little, I know, and we're, we're a little bit short for time. But what I'm gonna I'm gonna preface that and say we'll get you on for a part two because. There's loads, There's loads yeah. of things we can, we can talk about. However, we've got about 10 minutes and game speed. Mm. That's, well, again, one thing that came up in your webinar, the teaching versus training. Yeah. And I'd like to get your opinion on that, how we can ensure transfer from the things, all the things you've mentioned actually happens in a technical game. session game. Yeah. I think there
1: are two different things, firstly. So teaching and training for me is really down to the fact that just because someone looks pretty doesn't mean they're going to actually run fast. And then with the game speed thought processes, just because they can run fast doesn't mean they'll do it in a game. Yeah. So if you want to make sure the technique turns into fast running and physical robustness to do those actions repeatedly, yeah. Yeah. Because you've almost got two tasks there. Can you run fast? Great. Can you can you do that eight times within an eight minute period? Yeah, it's a different different discussion, right? Um, teaching and training for me is understanding what exercises, what mechanical properties are necessary to run fast. Yeah. So there are some. There's a moment arm bias within the hamstrings. Different hamstrings. Um, do different things during the running cycle. They have different preferences and different almost priorities of hamstring length tension relationships during the running cycle. What does that mean? It means that for me, it means that if I want to develop someone's ability to run really, really fast in upright running, I've got to make sure they also have the physical tools based on things that I've done maybe in the gym with eccentric work, with flywheel work, with isolated versus intersegmental work. But also I need to probably in team sports, more importantly, design running conditioning sessions that develop the technical movements, but under some duress. And, you know, everyone's like, if you're doing speed work and you're not giving people enough recoveries, then you're a bad coach. But when you're training for speed or you're training speed, it's two different discussions. If I'm training for speed, I sometimes have incomplete recoveries. When I'm training for speed, I want the movement to look similar, but I also want to create the physical underpinnings, the energy system, the work capacity, the tolerance to um, to essentially uh, mitigate risk when I train speed later on. So that's a really important concept. Everyone, everyone wants to sprint now in their sports, but p- people are now getting more injuries again because they're doing too much sprinting at the wrong time. They don't understand phase potentiation. They don't understand how to drip feed it over time and when they're drip feeding it, what else they should be doing on the field with resisted running, with repetitive um, almost speed endurance or repeat speed endurance and with your gym work. Um, You do that so that when you need to run really, really fast, you can do it, you can recover from it and it's got less stress on the body. So movements and muscles or uh, teaching and training, that's where it comes to. Game speed is more about Once they're confident and clear and you know they have repetitiveness, they have the ability to do it um, almost under fatigue and under some kind of distraction, game speed is more like can you replicate these movements, velocities, actions whilst being super distracted when you don't really care about the movement, where you care only about the outcome, you don't really care, you don't care as much about thinking about it, you know you need to be in the right position and be there fast. but. Um, you've got a number of distractions. So game speed to me um, is a big deal. Eddie Jones loves speed work, loves speed training. But if it doesn't finish with some game speed, if it doesn't look like what they need to know, um, and if you don't put them in positions and scenarios and stress test those scenarios for them to, to be able to run fast and be um, efficient in the, or, uh, and be effective in their skill work, then then there is no transfer and he won't be happy. Yeah, there's no... There, rarely do you find t- team... And I think that's where I've done most of my learning with the great team coaches. like Mike Ford, originally at, at Bath. It's great that you're doing speed work, but firstly, do they stay healthy? Secondly, does it turn into the game? And if, if there's a no to any of those, you failed your task. Um, and so really for, for team sport coaches... If you do the first stage and you do the right teaching and you underpin it with physical qualities, the likelihood of transfer just increases without even game speed. Yeah, That's the reality. If your guys have the physical capabilities to repetitively do what you want them to do, and that's their path of least resistance, that's probably the most important thing here, that when they're under stress, that when their body decides, I need to get from hair to hair as soon as possible, that the body knows, that the most efficient way for me to do it is use this movement pattern. That doesn't happen because they've done wickets or pulled a pulley once or twice. That happens because they're, they're the strongest muscle groups and the most efficient chain for them to use is, is that chain, the chain that you've trained. And until it is, then you just have people running fast, running straight lines, running PBs on GPS, great. But then when there's a break and they have to do a box to box, they completely regress to, um, to what is comfortable what is normal, what is the path of least resistance. So I think game speed um, is a complete other topic. I think game speed, you have to learn and, and design your game speed from top down. You have to have good skill coaches, good head coaches who are clear about what they want, clear about what their players do or don't do very well and can teach you. I've been taught by some great technical coaches about what they want. And then I've just regressed it, reverse engineered it, and gone. Oh, that's that's just a skip for height. Like I was talking was talking about high boards with one of our mentorships the other day about going up for a high ball in rugby, and and the skill of doing that is just a skip for height. It's really just a skip for height under lots of pressure um, on maybe an unstable surface because you're you're running and jump, but it's, it's a skip for height. So if you can d- dissect the perception action from the physical and you can be clear about the two you can develop the physical and make sure that they're clear about the technical as well as the uh, as well as have the physical capabilities and then you put them under more and more stress so that they can connect this new skill under the main skill then it transfers and if you'd miss any of those because some people perception that's perception that. okay, make sure they can perceive it great, but if they don't have the wheels or they don't have the the chassis or they don't have the um, the suspension to do the task, it's great that they make the right decisions, but they're in a full focus, not in a in a I don't know in a I don't know Porsche box though I don't know I'm not very good with cars. I don't know why I use it as an analogy um, <laughs> but um, hopefully that that kind of gives you a flavor of where I would go with things.
0: Well, that's going to form the next part two that's okay. well, that's where we'll start and then cool. we'll cover the sprint typing bit more about binary and then yep. some some questions that people kindly sent in that we just didn't have time to cover but that's that's fine we can we can right. do that in part two no just going back to the business stuff we've got yep. a couple of minutes before we before my wife bursts in because she's got a work call um where can people find you what have you got coming up um all um, the good stuff all the good stuff. So people can
1: find me on Instagram, on Twitter. Um, I, I'm Eat sleep, Train underscore or speedworks.training. Um, please, if you want to contact me directly, send an email for our website, speedworks.training. I'm not the best on Instagram. I log in and log out. I raise the app. It is sometimes a stress as much as it is good for business. So um, if people are replying, it might be some of our staff. But if you want to directly contact me, send me an email and I'll pick it up. Um, we've got lots of stuff coming on. I don't know when this is going to be announced, so I don't know, you know which podcast to talk about a webinar, but we um, we are building a subscription service um, and want, want it to be based around just learning the fundamental biomechanics and coaching, developing your coaching eye for critical skills from a range of sports. So look out for that. No I'll be pushing that. I'll be making you post it so everyone who follows right. you We'll take a look, and and um, there's going to be a lot more in in the pipeline.
0: Awesome, thank you very much. Three minutes to spare, so we're all good. Happy awesome. days. very good. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Thanks, thanks, Jonas. Really appreciate it. And uh, part two on its way. Lovely. Looking thanks, forward pal. to. It. See you soon. Bye bye. Bye bye. Thanks for tuning in to episode 295 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the chat with Jonas. So big thanks to Jonas for giving up his time in a very busy schedule, coming on between remotely coaching athletes, developing his business and delivering fantastic webinars, which we spoke about a lot in this episode. So if you haven't checked out the webinar that he delivered, head over to his Speedworks website. And you can get access to all the webinar and all the uh, materials that go around that via his website. So also a big thanks to Hawking Dynamics, to iMeasureU, Blackbox and Kitman Labs for sponsoring this episode today. As I say every week, the podcast could not run its current form without these guys. So I really appreciate their support uh, throughout, the, throughout the podcast and for every episode. So thank you for tuning in. Got some really cool guests coming up over the next couple of weeks and hopefully got something in the pipeline for episode 300, which should be out in uh, five to six weeks. So thank you again for your support and I will chat to you next week.